All right, Dave, we are back with the story of the naval race. But before we do, uh, we have to talk about your microphone again. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> um, so I wanted to acknowledge Lemon Cookies 85, who on February uh, 10th uh, wrote a review uh, for Apple Podcasts that said, uh, Oh my God, Dave sounds so much better. He could be a radio host. There you go. Um, and then um, another one, someone who didn't include a nickname, same day, who said, just stopping by to say thank you to Dr. Tarek for Dave's new mic. <laughs> Sounds great. Jokes aside, this is a great podcast. I've listened to the full Scramble series and now listening to the World War Civ series. Super informative and great insight. Thank you for all your work. It's much appreciated. So thank you um, very much for the That's reviews. Nice. Yeah, reviews are a big help. So if you uh, haven't already, if you're not one of the 46 people who have uh, who have who have gone and done a, a review, uh, please do. Um, I love I love this part of the podcast where I ask for reviews. Um, also, remember if you go to poder.org, um, we were just talking about this, and you go to shop. You can go to Civ Books and you can buy our book on India 1857, which is a beautifully laid out transcript uh, with lots of art and images. If you want to see what it's uh, an idea of what it looks like, you can download the free PDF of our Morant Bay episode in the same catalog. And very few people have have downloaded that free PDF, so it's it's interesting. Almost as many people have bought the. <laughs> the India 1857 book as have uh, have downloaded the Morant Bay free PDF. So I guess people aren't finding it or going to it yet. Um, I, I, of course, highly recommend it. Uh, it's a great place <laughs> to go. <laughs> so I think a lot of people are just uh, getting the audio through the different podcast feeds and not necessarily going to podor.org and visiting the site and seeing all the other stuff we have. So please do that. Um, so, okay, that's our housekeeping, right? Okay. So by about 1911, uh, you get another crisis, which we'll address in a later episode, uh, hopefully under two hours. The second Moroccan crisis, sometimes also called the Agadir crisis. And what that ended up doing uh, as a sort of repeat of the first Moroccan crisis with higher stakes it ended up pushing the British to closer cooperation with the French. The British were worried about the naval situation in the Mediterranean. You know they're counting everybody's battleships. Well, the Austrians and the Italians both had sizable fleets. Individually, you know, not a challenge to the British, but they are technically allies, and if they ever joined their fleets, then, you know, the British could be in trouble. So They didn't they made have a dreadnoughts, did they? Or... Yeah. Oh, wow. Everybody's okay. starting to build... Well, you have to. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, there's no point. Otherwise, your fleet can't compete. You're going to get blown yeah. out of the water. So Britain made a secret naval agreement with France. In case of a war, and you know they don't mention names, but it's pretty clear what they're talking about. In case of a war, France would shift its entire fleet to the Mediterranean which would leave Britain free to shift their Mediterranean fleets to the North Sea. 
and then they would have the advantage against the Triple Alliance in both spots. But notice that that would mean there'd be no British ships in the Mediterranean. You're depending on the French fleet. And likewise, there are no French fleets in the Channel or, or the Atlantic, which would leave their northern and western coasts totally exposed. And Tirpitz has a battle fleet, which is a threat to both of them. So the existence of the German fleet <clears throat> creates a really strong pressure on Britain to support France in case of war. They weren't officially obligated by the terms of the Entente. Remember, it's all just an understanding and, you know, technically we are not obligated to join you. But morally, it's like your neighbors are going to Florida and asking you to watch their house while they're gone. Well, you're kind of morally obligated to do it if you agreed, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, there's another little kink in the, in the naval race in 1912. Uh, Lord Haldane, the Secretary of State for War, made a visit to Berlin in an attempt to get a compromise. So remember, liberals, they don't want to spend a, a ton of money on this. And what he's hoping for is what's going to be called a naval holiday. What if we just both slowed down or, or took a break from naval building? That would, you know, save us both money and, and reduce tensions. Uh, Haldane is one of these liberal imperialists, but later became a member of the Labour Party and was actually forced to resign in 1915 because of his alleged pro-German sympathies. I mean, that's during the war, so it's slightly different. But <clears throat> if anything, this guy's considered a moderate, a dove. I don't know what to call him in present-day terms. Anyway, <laughs> so if the Germans will agree to reduce the naval race, Britain was prepared to make concessions in the colonial and diplomatic fields. Now, I don't know what diplomatic concessions would look like, but colonial concessions... You know, there are still some areas in Africa where there are tensions and disagreements and claims and counterclaims. So I think the British are offering a slice of territory somewhere. Even Tirpitz was interested and moderated his position for a bit. But when the German uh, Foreign Office came back with a, their proposal or their demand, if you want, uh, the British thought the price was too steep because what Germany asked in return for a holiday in the naval race was that Britain remain neutral in the event of a war between Germany and another country. And I quote here, where Germany could not be said to be the aggressor. And then they spelled it out. They wanted Britain to stay neutral in a war between Germany and France. And for the British, that price was too high. Yeah, they had just deepened <coughs> their engagement with France, right? Well, or, also, you or... know what the result of a war between Germany and France is going to be. It'll be short, and then it'll be over. Yeah. So, you know, do you want to abandon the French just to get a break in the naval race? So that was the end of that uh, enterprise. Now, I, I don't know how serious the British were. I don't know if they would have backed Haldane if he came back with some kind of agreement. 
but even for him, that was way too much to ask. Shortly afterwards, uh, Winston Churchill made a famous remark. He said, the British Navy is to us a necessity. And from some points of view, the German Navy is to them more in the nature of a luxury. Now, for his domestic audience, most British people, they saw this as, you know, completely obvious. But the Germans were outraged. Our <laughs> Navy is not a luxury. <laughs> I'd say the British Navy is also a luxury. I, I think they're both luxuries, but I guess... Yeah, but you know the British see it as, as a necessity. Yeah, it's their first line of defense, right? They don't have an army that can compete with anybody else, except, you know, <laughs> colonial... Uh, adventures and the Boers and stuff like that, you know. Um, the idea of the naval holiday was definitely scrapped after that. So I wanted to switch at this point and, and examine some of the, the attitudes on both sides of the of the channel, right? So we have Anglophobia in Germany, and then we have, you know, the, uh, the counter-argument that the British were paranoid or equally paranoid. And um, yeah, yeah, they were. They were. It's just interesting to note the change in their paranoia. And I did this following the career of uh, an interesting guy named William Lequeux, uh, Q-U-E-U-X. So he's an Anglo-French journalist, uh, traveler, and a big fan of uh, aircraft, those brand new inventions. And he also started his own uh, wireless station and started broadcasting music uh, long before in, radios were available, so we, into, like, into the ether for yeah. for for nobody. <laughs> well, it, you know, in some cases, it's like this podcast uh, free. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he wrote a novel in 1894, and the title of his novel was "The Great War in England in 1897." So the dates are interesting, right? 1894. He's writing about the future war or the coming war. In his novel, Britain is invaded by the French and the Russians. Brave English patriots fight on, and the tide turns when Germany comes into the war on England's side. Of course, they win the Wait, war. Wait, who is Britain fighting? Oh, Fran France and France Russia. And Russia. The evil huh. French and Russians. It's Over 1894. What? Like, they're invading England because they want to take England? Yeah. Weird. Well, Weird I don't know. worldview. I mean, yeah, given the complete lack of any historical... Well, what's that movie from the 80s? Red Dawn? Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> the, the Russian and Cuban invasion of, <laughs> of America. America? Yeah. Where some brave high school students take yeah. to the hills and this is the red dawn of, of 1897 yeah I guess yeah it is or the war of the worlds you know it's yeah a futuristic novel so they <laughs> win the war Britain takes Algeria and Russian Central Asia and Germany annexes more of mainland France so he's even got the end of the war and the carbon how dare the they invade and try to conquer us now we're gonna invade and conquer them <laughs> yeah that's the way it works so this type of book invasion literature was actually a genre you know i, I did a little more digging and found out that one of the first was called the battle of dorking 
1871, where the British are defeated by an invading German army. It was written by a retired soldier named George Chesney, uh, you know, as a warning against cuts to military spending. In 1903, uh, Erskine Childers wrote uh, a more famous book, The Riddle of the Sands, which is an espionage adventure thriller warning of the danger of a German invasion. And curiously enough, Childers ended up joining the Irish rebels after the First World War and was shot by a British firing squad. And, and his son uh, eventually became president of Ireland in 1973. Wow. I, I don't know, I just found that really interesting, so I threw it in. Uh, <laughs> obviously, the genre is popular. So William LeCur wrote a follow-up to his book uh, entitled The Invasion of 1910. He wrote this in 1906. So re remember, his original uh, book was about the French and Russians invading and Germany coming to Britain's aid. Uh, things were different by the second book. So in 1906, you can guess who's invading this time. Now it's Germany invading. That's right. It was published as a serial uh, in the Daily Mail newspaper. <laughs> Uh, owned by Lord Northcliffe. Now, Lord Northcliffe owned the Daily Mail, the Daily Mirror, the Observer, and the Times of London. So why wow. you need four newspapers, uh, <laughs> there's, the well, morning, is, yeah. there's the morning papers, the evening papers, and there's also the Sunday paper. So he's so hitting every you know, demographic it's that he can. This is interesting because the glory days, if you ever think the glory days before media monopoly and media consolidation, uh, <laughs> no. you're going to have to go back. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> before, before more than 100 years at least. So uh, Google William Randolph Hearst and then yeah. uh, do yourself a favor. It's very entertaining. Google Lord Northcliffe. He had 40% of the morning newspaper circulation and 45% of the evening papers. He's a really interesting guy. I'm going to say interesting without being judgmental. <laughs> uh, the novel was a huge success. And Northcliffe promoted it by having actors in German uniforms walking down the street. Oh, my God. And not only that, he, he convinced Lecour to make some editorial changes so when the Germans land, he had Lecour change the, the path of the invading army so that it would go through towns where Northcliffe had a large readership. <laughs> to scare them even more. Well, it's like, you know, changing the path of the railway to get to go through this town and get them to, you know, pay you for the privilege. Northcliffe had so much influence on anti-German propaganda during the war that the Germans actually sent a warship to shell his house uh, in an attempt to assassinate him. That's, you know, that's when you know you're doing a good job. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, I th if you ever think warmongering propaganda is a problem New? in our time, it goes back <laughs> uh, a while. It does. Now, Macmillan says that uh, if the Germans were upset by Churchill's comment that their navy was a luxury, she says that Tirpitz and the Kaiser never really understood how vitally important the navy was 
to Britain in their minds. Now you can argue that that it was a luxury to Britain. I I don't think so. But well, I, I mean, know it's, that it's th- an imperial navy. It's a project for dominating the world. It's vitally important to their project of world domination, of course. But and not- has been since Queen Elizabeth the first, right? Overseas right. trade, yeah. the carrying trade, uh, you know, delivering the slaves s- to the, the Spanish the slave colonies. trade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, obviously. In economic terms, it's the foundation of their wealth, and yes, their imperial reach. But now it's it's their defense; it's their first defense line. Yeah. So uh, she points out certain things. School children in Britain learned about the Spanish Armada and Napoleon. And the moral of those stories is the Navy saved us. Right. And just about everyone is going to agree with Jackie Fisher that the Empire floats on the British Navy. Even you agree with that. I sure do. By 1900, Britain didn't just rely on raw materials from the colonies to fuel their industries. They depended on it for food. 58% of the calories consumed in Britain came from overseas. Lord Selborne said, Our stakes are out of all proportion to those of any power. To us, defeat in a maritime war would mean a disaster of almost unparalleled magnitude. So what he's saying, I think, is take Trafalgar and reverse the result. Yeah, Trafalgar yeah, yeah. was a, a bad naval defeat for France and Spain, right? but, but it, it didn't stop been, Napoleon. Yeah, it's the end of the British Empire, of course. Yes, if Britain loses, they're done. Whereas Napoleon lost uh, Trafalgar and then went on to win Austerlitz and dictate peace to most of Europe. They're just what, um, they're just what Orwell called a cold and unimportant island (laughs) without Hmm. their empire. Okay. Now, personally, I think that Macmillan is, is mistaken. I don't think Tirpitz and Wilhelm had a failure of imagination. I think they knew exactly what the British Navy meant, and that's why they wanted to threaten Britain where it would hurt most. Yeah, yeah, of course. And and I mean, it, it's it's not about where, yeah, like where it would hurt has a lot of different meanings. But it's like, if you can't defeat their Navy or threaten their Navy, then they're going to dictate what happens to you. So it, it, it's a, it actually is a, a strategic consideration. Like you can't just blow off the naval contest if you're meaning to uh, rival them long term. Okay, but if you are a continental power, say Napoleonic France, or revolutionary and Napoleonic France, um, they fought Britain for, you know, 20, 25 years straight. And did the British contribute to their eventual defeat? Indeed, they did. Yeah. But the British Navy alone couldn't stop them. I think we said this in the, uh, the episodes on Napoleon. The elephant and the whale. Yeah. Yeah. But that's my it, but I, I don't know if that I don't know if that makes your point or Tirpitz and Wilhelm's, meaning they were fighting for so many years, but it, but the fact that they couldn't they couldn't they couldn't bring Britain to terms and Britain knew that they could last forever because they had an invincible navy and their overseas empire. So Okay. Let me pick out one, one important word there terms what are the german terms yeah 
what are you offering Britain? Yeah, this is why they're such a diplomatic disaster. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where they're building up all this power and they don't know what they're going to do with it. Yeah, and all they, doing they want is... intangible things like respect and a yeah. place in the sun, and you know, <laughs> okay. Now, I think Macmillan is right, though. The British diplomats were becoming increasingly anti-German. Uh, she gives the example of Sir Frank Lassell. He was the ambassador to Berlin from 1895 to 1908. He was pro-German. So again, 1895 to 1908. And in those days, ambassadors were very important. These are the guys who spoke directly to their, uh, you know, the head of the foreign office or, or sometimes even the chancellor or, or the prime minister. You know, you've got the ear of important people. And uh, these guys could vary the message slightly depending on their personalities. And LaSalle did. So he, he was recalled in 1908 and his successor, Sir Edward Goshen, was convinced that Germany was hostile to Britain. And again, there's a key word in what Macmillan's saying here, becoming, becoming. The British diplomats were becoming increasingly anti-German. Morocco in 1905, the Bosnia crisis, the second Morocco, the naval race, all these things added up to make them see Germany as an aggressive threat. Now, this guy is uh, more important than his position. Eri Crow. So his first name is E-Y-R-E. I've heard it pronounced Eri. Your guess is as good as mine. Uh, Crow, C-R-O-W-E. So Crow uh, was a an official in the foreign office, actually fairly junior, but he had a very big impact. He wrote a number of very influential uh, memoranda. And in 1907, he submitted a, a paper to Gray, the foreign minister, warning that Germany would continue to seize the advantage until they were checked. Blackmail, he said, had to be resisted. Germany could only be convinced to give up the naval race if for every new battleship they built, Britain built two. Oh, <laughs> that, that's, <laughs> that's thinking like... Uh... Like the, like, like the Germans. Like the Germans now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the really interesting thing. So Crow gets a lot of attention, especially from Germans. Like they'll point at him and go, oh, you had that guy. Um, yeah, doesn't he sound like some of your guys? <laughs> okay. So from the German perspective, the appearance of the first dreadnought is a clear, a pretty clear fork in the road. You now have to make... A decision or, or remake the first de- decision. You've spent a lot of money building battleships and those battleships are now already obsolete. So do you keep up the race, invest even more money in these massive super ships, or do you just give it up and try to mend fences with the British? At this stage, you know that relations are bad. The first choice is going to mean a ton of money. These ships cost twice as much. You're going to have to widen the Kiel Canal. I mentioned earlier it took eight years. Plus, you have the army wanting more money. Well, we know what Tirpitz and the Kaiser decided. And they decided to continue the naval race without input from the Chancellor, without input from the Reichstag, 
or the foreign office or anyone else in the Navy and definitely the Army. They got themselves into a sort of a self-fulfilling loop. So Chancellor Beulah was worried about the, the cost and he said it, we can't afford the strongest army and the second largest navy in Europe. And he was also worried about increasing British hostility. And Tirpitz answered, to give up now would mean that they all that all the money they had spent so far would be wasted. Oh boy. <laughs> so that's that's a gambler. That's gambler yeah. talk. Yeah. Like we're we're losing, but I gotta get our money back. Or, or make it worthwhile. Tirpitz also said that British hostility was based on trade rivalry with Germany and that that wasn't going to change. Plus, backing down would be political, politically dangerous, you know, public opinion, yada, yada, all of these justifications for the course that you want to pursue. There's a weird letter at this time. Uh, it comes from Kaiser Wilhelm. That's not a surprise. He wrote a long personal letter to Lord Tweedmouth, who was the first Lord of the Admiralty at that time. And the Kaiser wrote, the German naval bill is not aimed at England and is not a challenge to British supremacy of the sea, which will remain unchallenged for generations to come. Um, that's more than a little disingenuous. I'm not, not sure why you even bothered doing that. In August of, of 1908, there were conversations between the Kaiser and Sir Charles Harding. Uh, Harding was the permanent head of the Foreign Office, another very interesting guy. I would recommend looking him up. We don't have, I don't think we have the time for it. Um, Wilhelm thought that relations between their two countries were quite good. Harding disagreed. And Harding told him that England felt genuine apprehension about the German fleet, the reasons for building it in the first place, and the, you know, intention, like, how are you going to use this fleet? It was pretty clear what it was for. Mm -hmm. And Harding warned the Kaiser that if Germany went ahead, Britain would step up their own program. That's pretty clear. Actually, in, in yeah. the diplomacy of this era, that's very clear. Frank... Yeah. Yeah. Wilhelm replied again that there was no reason to fear a German fleet and that the British were far ahead. Also, that it was a point of national honor and that backing down would lead to internal troubles for Germany. And then the two men disagreed on how many ships the British actually had. So this is interesting too. Macmillan uh, discusses this conversation in, in detail. The Kaiser called a young aide forward and actually presented Harding with, you know, the numbers of the British fleet. And Harding looked at the numbers and said, I'm sorry, those are, those are wrong. Like so maybe, maybe both sides are overestimating what the other has. Yeah. Which is always good for your, you know, your industrial lobby, right? Sure. We have to catch up to them. So we put their numbers higher. So Wilhelm, uh, as he did in so many cases, immediately went to tell the story to his chancellor, Bülow, and his version is, is uh, quite different. He told Bülow that he had put Harding in his place. According to the <laughs> Kaiser, Harding said, can't you stop building? And Wilhelm replied, 
then we shall fight, for it is a question of national honor and dignity. And he looked Harding square in the face, and the oh. Englishman flushed, bowed, and apologized. And the Kaiser bragged to Bulow, <laughs> <Doubt> it. <laughs> didn't I give it properly to Sir Charles? With Englishmen, the only thing that works is frankness, ruthless, even brutal frankness. That's the best method to use with them. Well, Bulow knew his boss by now, so uh, he went and checked with a few uh, colleagues who had been present for that conversation and overheard what they described as an amicable conversation. <laughs> and just so you know, Macmillan's source for this uh, anecdote, Bulow's memoirs. Now, we've discussed how memoirs are sometimes unreliable, but... Uh, it it's Bulow's <laughs> memoirs, you know. <laughs> if anybody's going to give you the straight dope on what happened, it's not going to be the Kaiser. So the British suspicions are just getting stronger and the German building program is speeding up. And then you have one of those little unfortunate accidents of history that make things worse. Uh, it, this is the, the Daily Telegraph article of October 28th, 1909. So a year earlier, Wilhelm had been visiting Britain and had a conversation with an Englishman by the name of Colonel Edward Stuart Wortley, hyphenated Stuart Wortley. How, how English. Uh, <laughs> Wortley had lent Wilhelm his house for the duration of the Kaiser's visit. So they had a chat, actually more of a monologue, because the Kaiser just went on and on, about how he'd always wanted good relations with Britain, but they didn't appreciate everything he had done for them. The alliance with Japan was a mistake. He brought up the yellow peril thing again. Uh, the German fleet was designed to support Britain. Uh, Macmillan describes Wortley as credulous, a uh, little naive, and maybe believing a little too much of what the Kaiser was uh, was dishing out. Uh, Wortley came to the conclusion that if only the British public could have heard Wilhelm's real, in quotations, real views, relations between the two countries could be mended overnight. So he, he wrote down some notes of the conversation and then submitted those notes to a journalist who then wrote them up in the form of an interview to make it look like that's what it had, had taken place. When that was finished, the journalists sent it to Germany for the Kaiser's approval, which is quite nice, right? Checking with them before yeah, publishing. That's, that's, not, that's not normal journalistic practice, although if, you know, I'm sure it happens. <laughs> it it might have you know, been at the time. I, yeah. it, it might have been at the time. It's yeah. de definitely not so today, that's for sure. So Wilhelm saw the notes, and, well, we already know that he was a bit lazy about that kind of stuff. Uh, maybe he glanced at them, and then he passed it to his chancellor, Bulow. Bulow later claimed that he had been too busy to read it carefully. Uh, or, you know there's the version of his enemies put out that he, he never challenged the Kaiser anyway. So if the Kaiser said it was okay, then it's okay. Either way, the article then went to the foreign ministry where 
nobody read it carefully. Or if they read it, nobody understood what this could be or what this could do. So the interview ended up being published in the Daily Telegraph in Britain. Uh, the result was bad. <laughs> Capital oh, dear. bad. Well, for someone who had spent so much time visiting Britain, Wilhelm did not know how to talk to them. Yeah. The tone of the of the article of the interview came across as self-pitying and accusatory. Uh, and there here's a couple of quotations that that stuck stuck out for people. The British are mad, mad, mad as March hares. Oh, How could they fail to see that he was their friend? All he wanted was to live in peace and on good terms. My actions ought to speak for themselves. But you listen not to them, but to those who misinterpret and distort them. That is a personal insult, which I feel and resent. You know, it sounds like the way the British talk to the colonial subjects, you know, it's very, (laughs) very insulting. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean. Oh, you fools, you don't know what's good for you. How much I've done for you. After everything I've done for you. Yeah, I'm misunderstood. Fake news. <laughs> so Wilhelm claimed to have helped Britain in the Boer War, preventing the other powers from intervening. That was true. He had also, with his own hands, drawn up a plan of campaign for the British Army, which his own general staff had reviewed and approved. That's not so wise to say. He said that uh, in the interview? Yeah. Huh. It's also true. It's just you maybe shouldn't have mentioned that one. He was amazed that the British thought his navy was directed against them. It was needed for the growing German Empire and its trade. Britain would be glad one day when they realized that Japan was not their friend, but Germany was. And the timing of the article, the content was bad really bad. The timing was awful too, because it came right on the heels of the Bosnia crisis. So British readers who who read the article saw this as further proof that the Kaiser was uh, unbalanced, not all there. Uh, Crow, the foreign office official, suspected that it was a deliberate German attempt to lull the British into slowing down their naval program. So, you know, there's your ultra-paranoid reaction. But the main reaction was mainly, the Kaiser's not all there, is he? Mm. And the reaction in Germany wasn't just bad, it was worse. Germans read it and wondered, why is the Kaiser professing friendship to the English? And there was uh, quite a bit of criticism from both the left and the right. And Chancellor Bülow defended his master, but, you know, did a half-hearted job of it once he saw the you know the bad results he was more interested in saying i didn't do that that wasn't me so macmillan's conclusion on on this stuff far from forcing britain into friendship as Tirpitz planned the naval race created a deep gulf between germany and britain and brought the hardening of both elite and public opinion in both countries against the other um, I'm not sure about the first half of that statement, uh, 
I forcing Britain into friendship. Uh, if you define friendship as concessions, you know, forcing Britain into concessions. Okay. And yeah, there's a lot of not, yeah, there's a lot of uh, this kind of peace through strength stuff that I don't know why they, I don't know why they uh, thought that would work on each other. Yeah. Yeah. And she says, uh, brought, which sounds like, you know, created. Yeah. I I think the naval race simply worsened the Gulf. The Boer War had already shown that, you know, German public opinion was anti-British and, you know, with the Moroccan crises and the other crises, the British started to see the Germans as the big threat. The naval race just made everything worse. So Chancellor Bülow and his successor, Bethman Holweg, both started to explore ways of ending the naval race. Uh, they, They opened talks with the British from late 1909 to 1911, and those talks ended with the second Moroccan crisis. I don't know whether they would have succeeded. Uh, against opposition from Tirpitz and the Kaiser. So, I don't know. But it, it is curious to to wonder, you know, to, to look at a possible alternate history. What if the Germans had spent all those resources and all that money on their army instead of their navy? It makes me wonder what the diplomatic scene would have looked like, because obviously they wouldn't have been a threat to German to Britain. And it also makes me think about what happened militarily in August 1914. What would that have looked like? (laughs) Indeed. Yeah. (laughs) Indeed. So I think we should, this is a good, these are good questions to uh, pose for Sir Halford McKinder, who's back. Oh, here we go. Uh, Yeah, we, we keep bringing it back to Halford McKinder. I really can't talk about this guy enough. Um, I finally, I finally got into the book, Dave. Um, okay. I mean, Mahan also, but, but Mackinder. Huh. So the book everybody quotes is democratic ideals and reality from 1919. And the subtitle says something about reconstruction. And I was like, what? He's talking about uh, South us South. No hey, reconstruction after world war one. He means, right. Um, So it's from 1919, uh, and he talks about how America had to come to Britain's aid because Britain would inevitably be outbuilt and outmanned a few years later. So he, you know, the industrial, the Paul Kennedy uh, industrial sense of the war after the war was over was Britain was going to lose without American uh, help. Um, Okay. But... He's got this analysis. It's all these geography. It's this geography geekery, right? So, and it's racial. It's a racial geography. So, Mackinder sees Eastern Europe is the Teutonic, which is the superior race, and the Slavonic uh, race, which, of course, is the inferior. And then in Western Europe, there's the Romance race and the Teutonic race. So, the Teutonic race in these guys' uh, worldview is like Germany, Britain, um, and they're racially superior, they're democratic inherently, they're militarily better, they're intelligent, whatever, right? Um, So Eastern Europe is the domination of the superior Teutonic over the inferior Slavonic in World War I uh, happened because of there was an unusual and unnatural Slavonic and Romance alliance against the Teutonic races, um, which shouldn't have happened, shouldn't have been allowed to happen. 
so and then it's also Teutons fighting each other, which also shouldn't be allowed to happen. Um, so this is a violation of a hundred years of history by France. He says West Europe must necessarily be opposed to whatever power attempts to organize the resources of East Europe and the heartland. Both British and French policy for a hundred years past takes on a large consistency. We were opposed to the half German Russian Tsardom because Russia was the dominating threatening force in both East Europe and the heartland for half a century. We were opposed to the holy German Kaiserdom because Germany took the lead in East Europe from the Tsardom and would then have crushed the revolting Slavs and dominated East Europe and the heartland. So this is a, it's a window into, it's a window into a worldview that really. uh, I I got a question. (laughs) If the Slavonic people are inferior, aren't the Teutonic going to dominate them naturally, racially speaking? Yeah, but then they, sh- but then this whole France just took the wrong side, right? France chose to ally with the Slavonic people when they should have, instead of recognizing their inferior position and accepting Teutonic domination. Yeah, because oh, France oh, okay. is not because France is not fully Gauls, right? France is both. France has some Teuton, and 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 I guess French racists also understand this that. French is France is also partly Teutonic, and they just need to uh, does embrace he blame, that a little more. Does he blame Britain for supporting the wrong side? Uh, I don't think Britain is ever to, bl- to blame in this particular <laughs> okay. scheme. <laughs> so uh, there's this line that comes up over and over, uh, and I think Brzezinski and people like that were really, really uh, big on that. Brzezinski being, I don't know what his position was, but he was a U.S. imperialist, architect of the Afghan jihad against Russia in the 80s. Secretary of State? I'll look him up for you. It's it's big new Brzezinski. It's big new Brzezinski. So this is a quote that I think inspired Brzezinski, and it it goes like this. Who rules East Europe commands the heartland. Who rules the heartland commands the world island. And who rules the world island commands the world. So the idea is the world is... Uh, basically Europe and Asia and uh, the 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 Americas is just like a little island by comparison. Um, and of course, the other little islands like Japan and Britain are just satellites. And so world domination uh, for um, for Mackinder and therefore for American theorists like Brzezinski, who I thank you for looking it up, is, was national security advisor uh, is is um is command of your your Eurasia and so they're they're upset because you know while naval powers have this important power of going around the coasts and controlling the heartland from the coasts uh if you can control the heartland from within which you know Germany Russia some kind of alliance between Germany and Russia would be the worst case scenario from the point of view of British or Anglo-American imperialism, which is based on naval power. So here's a, here's a, (laughs) this is the quote everybody likes. Here's a less famous quote, which I think is very telling of, of Mackinder's mentality. Um, Because the conquerors of old time did their work ruthlessly, countries like France and England are today homogeneous and free from that mixture of races, which has made the Near East a plague to humanity. (laughs) 
<laughs> Why doesn't anybody Jeez. ever quote that? Um, so speaking of the Near East, he's very happy about the Balfour <laughs> Declaration, which we will dedicate appropriate time to uh, when the time comes. Um, he says the Jewish national seed in Palestine will be one of the most important outcomes of the war. So, you know, he 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 likes the idea of, of Jewish people having a country because the internationalist work of the homeless, brainful Jew has no place in a league of independent, friendly nations. So if the if the Jew has a natu- national home, that should make him range himself. That's what uh, <laughs> Kinder thought. Range? But, yeah, range. So he, you know, he limits himself to some natural range. Oh, okay. Okay. Not like the global Englishman who can go wherever he wants. Uh, so there's lots of geographical stuff, you know. It's a lot of little maps and little descriptions of how the heartland works. And there's grassland here and there's mountains there, that kind of stuff. But there is some interesting stuff, which I have to concede. One is that he points out that the railway means, like you, we've, we've, we've mentioned earlier, the... Um, land mobility is approaching the same level as sea mobility, which uh, really bothers uh, Mackinder, of course, uh, if you're if you're trying to control the world through naval power. So um, that's Mackinder. And of course, from that perspective, and he is a theorist of this type of naval power, then the idea of Germany and Russia being on the same side is a nightmare. And even if that happens through the subordination of Russia to Germany, which is of course what he, the only outcome someone like Mackinder can envision. Uh, So it's a racial view. It's kind of a racial geographic view. And it's this long-term view with, with the role of naval power and thinking of Europe and Asia as the key part of the world, the world island, as he calls it. All right. So now Germany, um, who is to blame? Is Germany to blame or is uh, England to blame? Uh, Whether it's the naval race or the outbreak of World War I in general, we have this debate. And you've been presenting Christopher Clark, and it was kind of in this, uh, you know, nonlinear way. I was listening to Radhika Desai, who's a professor out in uh, Winnipeg, I think. And right. she gave a lecture on YouTube about World War One and like how World War One restructured the world. And so she's giving this lecture and she says, you know, of course, the Fisher thesis, da 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 And then she says, and this was later disputed by people like Christopher Clark and so on. And I was like, what? What's the Fisher thesis? What? Christopher Clark is rebutting somebody? So I look up the Fisher thesis and, the, and there's this revisionist history of World War I uh, by Fritz Fischer, which comes around in the 1960s. He has a book called Germany's Aims in the First World War, and then he has a follow-up called War of Illusions. Mm -hmm. So what Fischer is doing is basically saying it's all Germany's fault, which, you know, is (laughs) plausible. (laughs) Um, Well, just for, can we give a little background here? Sure. There's a whole historical industry after World War One, yeah. Because it was so traumatic, because it was so destructive. You know, by the time it ends, everybody's standing there in complete disbelief. What did we just do? Yeah. And then they start thinking about the we part. Yeah, it wasn't us; it was them. And then you have the Treaty of Versailles, which was very punitive, and the losers were punished very heavily. They lost territory. They lost quite a bit of 
you know, things. Germany lost its colonies and, and so on. In order to justify the punishment, the Allies turned it into an industry where they all wrote histories blaming Germany. The Germans saw this coming and started their own historical industry saying it wasn't us. It was everybody. Right. Yeah. So there are hundreds of sources you can read that are all, you know, following the national line. It wasn't us. Right. It was them. Right. And but I Fisher guess what's is special, the first. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what's special about Fisher is he's German and he's arguing yeah. that it's Germany's fault. And he, he's got pretty solid sources, right? So he's, he's going back over a bunch of sources that he, that, are, are less known at this time. So it's a, it's a, it's a solid, you know, work of history that he's doing. Um, yeah. And so his intro talks about all of these things that we've been discussing, German industrial power, the place in the sun that they want. They think that it has a special role against the Anglo and Russian powers. And he quotes the intellectual and government kind of figures of the period. And then the Navy issue he reminds us about, we, you mentioned it above, but uh, the Navy League, um, and uh, otherwise known as the Fautenverein. Um, and he calls it a, it's very interesting because he says it's a purely business creation founded by the industrialists. He says this, he says, the League developed into the first great example of state-controlled propaganda. The presidents of the Prussian provinces and the princes of the non-Prussian states were its patrons. Its members included the senior bureaucracy and junior civil servants, such as teachers. Provincial and local school councils carried its ideas into every village. Public opinion, in return, influenced the political parties. Um, General Kame, Kame was a little overzealous uh, as its leader of the Navy League. So they brought it under the direct control of the Reich Naval Office. So General Kame was basically criticizing the the it, the um, establishment for being too weak and not right. not building the navy enough. And they got a little tired of of the criticisms, so they brought it under their own control. Um, so Fisher, uh, like um, you know, like you were saying, he also doesn't think it was the only factor because the naval race is only possible with the sponsorship of Germany's economic power and the pressure from the elite for a bigger place in the world. Um, Germany's also another factor is the raw materials crunch. So they're getting into this Austria-Hungary, uh, into Southern Europe. They are, they're, they've setting, they're setting up oil companies uh, to in Romania, I guess, mm-hmm. Stella Romana. I don't know where that is, actually. Romania. To counter to counter standard oil and Royal Dutch Shell. They've got the Anatolian and Baghdad railways. They're getting into Krivoy Rog and Chiaturi ore, ore deposits in Ukraine and Caucasus uh, through relationships with Russian banks. So they are, they're working on securing uh, natural resources for their war machine, which, again, is going to be a long-term issue for uh, both world wars, uh, as we will see. This is a major, major consideration that Germany has, uh, which I guess Britain doesn't have as much because of their empire, again. Mm -hmm. Um, And the U.S. doesn't have, because they just have everything continentally, and then they they have their smaller empire for whatever they don't get. So, um, 
Uh, Fisher again, an economy organized on the most modern lines, regularly introducing every modern innovation and invention fed by a network of technical academies organized exclusively to serve it and manned by a disciplined, industrious and thrifty population. So obviously Britain is going to see this and worry, but on one on the other side, there's a weak there's weaknesses. Fritz Fischer says there's an anachronistic and conservative army that has fallen behind um, in terms of machine guns, intelligence, tanks, anti-tank weapons, and they have too much cavalry, which I wonder, that's probably not true relative to France, but I'm sure it's true relative to, you know, maybe Britain and... um, Yeah, he's got a few cheats in there because tanks don't exist until the middle of the war. During the war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and the Germans are ahead in several other ways, which we'll get into in yeah, a later episode. Yeah, that's what I, I thought that too. I was surprised to read this. Interesting, though, that he points out what should have been a natural direction for the Germans, right? Forget your colonies. Yeah. They're not bringing you anything. Exactly. Invest in Russia. There's a natural exactly. alliance, right? Two yeah. conservative regimes, yep. two autocratic governments. One has all the capital to invest, and the other has yeah. all the resources that you need. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Wow. So Tirpitz and Bulow, he he has this discussion about how the world policy that they had basically led to an isolation, which was made inevitable by Germany's over-insistence on the principle of a free hand and an over-assessment of her own strength. So what is the world policy? Well, there's Middle Europa, um, Middle Africa, and Asia Minor. These are the three planks of the world policy. So... Um, there's, <laughs> there's, everybody was reading Mahan, uh, which we mentioned Alfred Thayer Mahan's book, uh, the role of sea power in world history or whatever, which we talked about in the previous, at the beginning of this discussion of, of naval power. Um, but there's also a 1912 book, Germany and the next war by Bernhardi, which is basically like what we're going to have to do in the next war, which also freaks everybody out when they read it. Mm. So we'll definitely, get to that book as we get a little bit closer to that year. Um, And then the last note that Fisher has about the fleet and the naval issue, he says the construction of this fleet, the German fleet, cut across the feelers for an alliance, which were put out between 1898 and 1901, and was one of the factors which made Britain decide finally after 1901 to seek other partners. Britain's immediate reaction was to assure herself of Japan, through the alliance of 1902, proceeding to approaches to France in 1903 and the establishment of the Entente in 1904. So right. it's a right. big factor uh, from the Fisher thesis perspective. Fisher's a, a, a really big deal, uh, not just for historiography of the 60s and, and not just for the, you know, the causes of World War I, because uh, we're also talking about the causes of World War II Exactly. And, you know, let's not forget there's a major industry uh, largely composed of Germans and Brits who are busily trying to defend Hitler and German war aims in (laughs) World War II. And, you know, and this stuff is all connected. But but his when his book came out, the reaction was amazing. Obviously, in Germany, they put out a fatwa on him. And (laughs) did he stay or did he have to leave? I don't, I don't know, but he was definitely attacked as a traitor. And, you know, the whole historical establishment basically said, how could you? And then of course, you know, the Anglo British reaction. He he died in Germany. Finally. 
he died in Germany in 1999. So I guess he managed well, okay. to hang in yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> but the late 60s in Germany is a very different climate, right? So it wasn't it wasn't quite as bad, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I guess after World War II, the idea that Germany was to blame was popular, even in Germany. Well, yeah. A little harder. A little <laughs> hard harder to, to argue. Hard to yeah. argue. <laughs> yeah. But it, yeah, so I don't know to what extent Christopher Clark is the, uh, you know, the British fisher. Uh, I think there are plenty before him, uh, especially in the interwar period, who regretted how harsh the Treaty of Versailles was and they felt bad for Germany. I mean, a lot of this is connected to the rise of Hitler and appeasement and all of those things. But yeah, Clark is, I wouldn't ennoble him too much by saying he has the same impact as Fisher. Maybe he's trying to. So <laughs> speaking of Clark, he starts his discussion of the naval race uh, with a mention of the Kruger telegram. So this is where the Kaiser uh, congratulated the president of the Transvaal on having defeated the Jameson raid. So again, this is congratulating somebody who just defeated your grandmother in a, in a fight. Yeah. Um, so Clark describes uh, the Kruger telegram as this mildly worded message provoked <laughs> a, a torrent of outrage in the British press and a corresponding wave of jubilation in Germany. Finally, something is being done to stand up for German interests overseas. But then Germany accepted a compromise that excluded them from further involvement in the political future of Southern Africa to the disgust of the national press. Right. Well, okay. So, <laughs> um, all right, let's, let's go with that. Oh, and just, you know, as a note to, to our listeners, the reason I went into this in such detail is uh, it, it's a cautionary tale. You have to really be careful when you're reading these Absolutely. things, especially if you don't have a background in them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of the first day of, of class with my history students, I would warn them not to trust me. Uh, I have my <laughs> biases, and I also warned them that I was going to lie to them from time to time. That was mostly as a, 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 you know an educational trick or tool. But I just warned them, you, you can't believe everything you hear or read. And this guy's a good guy, a good one to start with. So for Clark, the 1890s were thus a period of deepening German isolation. <laughs> and I, hmm. I think, what? Okay, thus means that this is because of this? And German isolation, aren't they members of the Triple Alliance? Isolation from Britain, I guess, is the, uh, is the isolation key. from the head table. What are you talking about? Yeah. Far from countering their isolation through a policy of rapprochement, the German policymakers raised the quest for self-reliance to the status of a guiding principle. The most consequential manifestation of this development was the decision to build a large navy. So their naval program came out of a sense of isolation and a desire to be self-reliant. Hmm. Um, 
if you want to be self-reliant, that you built the wrong kind of Navy. You want the cruisers <laughs> right. to protect your colonies. So, you know, I don't know. Uh, by the way, all of this reading I'm doing are direct quotations from Clark. Uh, Naval construction and strategy came to occupy a central place in German security and foreign policy. I just, yes, I love the, the passive language this guy the, uses. Yeah, the actor here, the the noun here, the person doing things is naval construction and strategy. Yeah, <laughs> not, it wasn't uh, us. It any... was naval construction and strategy. <laughs> they did it. <laughs> yeah. So he notes the influence of public opinion and the influence of Mahan's book, Fair. Then he says, but the international dimension was also crucial. It was above all, the sequence of peripheral clashes with Britain that triggered the decision to acquire a more formidable naval weapon. After the Transvaal episode, the Kaiser became obsessed with the need for ships, to the point where he began to see virtually every international crisis as a lesson in the primacy of naval power. So, again, what triggered... The naval race was the sequence of peripheral clashes with Britain. So it's their fault, kind of. Yeah, well, it's not their fault. It's the fault of a sequence of clashes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he said this guy's a master of, uh, of passive voice, eh? Isn't he? So then he writes, was the decision to challenge Britain a needless provocation that permanently soured relations? And my answer would be, uh, yeah. Clark admits that the naval strategy wasn't connected to any broader policy, but that it was neither outrageous nor unwarranted. The Germans had ample reason to believe that they would not be taken seriously unless they acquired a more credible naval weapon. I didn't realize that weapons had to be credible. I also didn't realize that the, the the sheer importance of being taken seriously here is is doing a lot of work too, right? Right. We did an episode earlier on German foreign policy, and you know, I can't help concluding that it was adolescent in in a number of ways. Like, you're not taking me seriously, okay? Um, you know, sorry for the tone, but that's a laughable argument, I think. Yeah. Oh, and then Clark writes, it should not be forgotten that the British were accustomed to using a rather masterful tone in their communications with the Germans. Well, we, we have to start World War I over that. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't like the way you talk to me. Wow. And this is coming from the Germans, and we've already given you enough episodes of uh, their diplomatic language. Tone. You know, wow. So there's an episode in Clark's book which I, I'm just going to give you a, a quick rundown on in a little more detail. He's talking about a meeting in March of 1897 between Sir Francis Bertie, who is the assistant undersecretary of the Foreign Office, and acting German ambassador to Britain, Baron Hermann von Eckertstein. So Bertie and Eckertstein. Clark begins his uh, story by pointing out that Bertie was known as the bull for his aggressive manner. Hmm. Okay, I couldn't find that anywhere. 
<laughs> Bert, just Bertie was known as the bull, but it could be for his physique. Right. Right? But no, for Clark, it's his aggressive manner. Meanwhile, Eckerd Stein was a notorious Anglophile who dressed in the manner of Edward VII and loved to be seen around the London clubs. Okay. If you're going to be the ambassador to Britain, you should probably drop the traditional German wearing of a uniform and go with the more British tradition of, you know, dressing in civilian clothes. But he has to point out that Bertie is aggressive and Eckerstein is an Anglophile, a notorious Anglophile. So I read this paragraph and I thought, relevance? What does this have, you know? So obviously I'm now... I'm now looking up Sir Francis Birdie and I'm looking up Eckerdstein. And there's very little to find about Eckerdstein except uh, illustrations of him. Somebody drew him in evening dress and there are one or two famous pictures of him. So try it, you know, look up Baron Hermann von Eckerdstein, E-C-K-A-R-D-S-T-E-I-N. And what you're going to find is pictures of him and then there's the fact that he wrote his memoirs, uh, which I'll come back to in a moment. I can't read German, so I was not able to, to read his memoirs. So apparently at this meeting, Eckerdstein raised the question of German interests in Southern Africa. Hmm. At which point, Bertie's response came as a shock. Should the Germans lay so much as a finger on the Transvaal, the British government would not stop at any step, even the ultimate, to repel any German intervention. Should it come to a war, the entire English nation would be behind it, and a blockade of Hamburg and Bremen and the annihilation of German commerce on the high seas would be child's play for the English fleet. Um, (laughs) The ultimate. Yeah, them's fighting words. So, of course, my first reaction was, I've never heard of this. I've never (laughs) heard of this. Where did this come from? So red flags are going up all over the place, and I'm wondering... Okay, let me find out. So I now look closer at Clark's, you know, page on this. There is a citation for it. He doesn't always have citations in the right places. In this case, he does. And his source for this is Dr. Harold Rosenbach. So now I have to look up Harold Rosenbach. And the source that he's quoting is a book entitled Germany, Great Britain, and the Transvaal. 1896 to 1902. Okay. Um, uh, Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Again, I can't read German, so I cannot read Rosenbach's book. But I look up Rosenbach. Uh, He was a visiting lecturer at the University of Aston in Birmingham, and he was or still is the head of the Max Weber Foundation uh, in Germany. I didn't see any other publications. Maybe he does have more, uh, but that seems to be the work that Clark is relying on. Um, Got to tell you, this is not central. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
you're you're kind of you're kind of reaching here. And I'm now looking up this subject, Bertie and Eckerstein, March of 1897. And the only thing I found on the internet is a quotation of Clark's book. So basically this story mm. being requoted. And that's dangerous, really dangerous. Gotta go to the original. So I'm trying to figure out where did Rosenbach get his information? Because nobody else has this. How are you privy to this story and nobody else got it? So I dug a little deeper into Bertie. I cannot find anything that suggests that he was a fly-off-the-handle kind of guy. And also there's no report from him, you know, to his superior saying, oh, I gave it to Eckerstein, good. <laughs> Meanwhile, I just remembered, you know, Eckerstein wrote his memoirs. Now, as I said, I can't find his memoirs and I don't read German, which is, you know, a fault of mine and a reason why I didn't uh, pursue a PhD in this stuff. <laughs> but I did find something about Eckerstein and uh, it came from Macmillan. Uh, she describes Eckerstein's memoirs as entertaining but unreliable. Now, I had some questions. I mean, this sounds really important if those were the <laughs> words he actually used. Yeah. So question number one, why does this episode show up absolutely nowhere else? Yeah. Uh, Except could, in, in yeah. Rosenbach's book about Germany and Britain and the Transvaal. And if you think of a thing going at like accelerating over time. What's going on in 1897 is probably less important than what's going on in like 1907, if you're talking about the causes of World War One, like the proximity yeah. to right things and, get more intense the closer you get, right? And what we know about 1897 is that you know the the German naval building program is in its infancy, and the British are faced with having to you know rebuild their entire obsolete fleet, and this is pre dreadnought. So, um, hmm. My second question is for Clark. Why did you cite Rosenbach? Why wouldn't you go to the original source and yeah. cite Eckerdstein? Yeah. Is it because you know Eckerdstein is not considered a serious source? Right. Or because it's not in there. I don't know. I mean. Well, I don't think Rosenbach made it up from scratch. Right, right. My my suspicion would be that Rosenbach read Eckerdstein and said, oh, this is great, and yeah. put it in his book. And the reason nobody else is citing Rosenbach is either because they never read his book uh, or that they know, you know, you don't, <laughs> you know, there's some sources you don't take seriously, yeah. and Eckerstein's memoirs would apparently be one of them. Uh, my next question is simply based on logic. If you're Eckerdstein, wouldn't you tell somebody that Bertie got in your face and used insulting language and threatened war? Is that not something you would mention? Perhaps in a letter to the Chancellor or to the Foreign Office? Can yeah. you imagine if Kaiser Wilhelm had heard that Bertie spoke to Eckerdstein this way? Right. right. Which also means that if the conversation actually happened, Nobody else heard about it. The only feelings that were hurt were Eckerdstein's, 
It did not affect German policy because none of them heard of it. Yeah, exactly. All if they had heard of it, they would have had a meltdown. You you can guarantee that, right? Right. So I you know, I read this story in Clark and I think, uh, you're you're borderline fudging here. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. you know this is an unreliable source. It'd be interesting to to hear him defend it. I don't know. So that's the end of my rant. Uh, on sources and the importance of corroborating facts in historical accounts. So Clark admits that the German fleet, the naval building program, had an English anti-English orientation. Tirpitz made no secret of it, so Clark's not going to deny it. But he says that there's nothing surprising about this. Armaments programs usually measure themselves against the most formidable potential opponent. Um, maybe, yeah, I don't know. Is that true? Mm-hmm. And, and even so, like, why do you, why do you need a Navy? <laughs> it doesn't, yeah. Uh, Clark says British policymakers were less obsessed with and less alarmed by German naval building than is often supposed. So he's suggesting now that the German fleet wasn't that big, big of a deal. The British didn't get that obsessed. And that's true. At first, at first, he gives a few examples, Clark does. Uh, Sir Charles Harding in October 1906, he, had, he acknowledged that Germany posed no immediate naval threat to Britain. Right. Ten pages later, though, he quotes Harding in March of 1909, we have no pending questions with Germany except that of naval construction. So, um, yeah, you can't do this. You cannot suggest that the British were not upset by German naval building and then say that they were paranoid about naval building a few pages later mm-hmm. and that they got over, you know, that they went overboard with their anti German hostility. Yeah. You kind of have to include the element of time. At first, they were not upset, right. but they that, became that increasingly uh, paranoid. And then Clark gives numbers of battleships to show that Britain was way ahead. And I looked at the numbers and thought, okay, dude, where did you get these? And mm-hmm. also, if you are correct about the number of battleships and Tirpitz saw these numbers, then he had to realize his plan was a total failure. Mm-hmm. Clark says okay. German Weltpolitik's achievements after 1897 were modest, especially compared to the imperial predations of the U.S. <laughs> so, and, and and by the way, he's talking about predations on British possessions. <laughs> this guy doesn't care about imperialism. Come on. Oh no, no. He, his only concern about imperial predations is they got more. Yeah. And when they do it, it's predations. And when Germany does it, they're modest achievements. Right. You know the language is <laughs> so. Germany only got Samoa and some Pacific islands plus Kiachau Bay in China. While the Americans got the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Guam, Hawaii. And Clark describes the horrific colonial war in the Philippines. I, you know, he would have Good liked our him. episode on that. Yeah. On that. Um, he doesn't mention horrific colonial wars when they're 
Germany. Not Namibia or no. <laughs> did he miss the Namibia? Yeah. Episode? Yeah. Well, he actually took the line of that guy you quoted and said, you know, that, you know, the natives we faced were more, more tougher. Yeah. They were t- yeah, more difficult. They didn't roll over like the other natives we did. We had for- to kill them all. We had to. Yeah. Uh, Clark says that German political leaders, and he doesn't identify them, German political leaders believed that the door to a German-British rapprochement would be permanently open because of tensions between the powers. That That's fair, uh, and that is why they asked too much for their alliance in 1898-99 and why yeah. they uh, didn't seize the opportunity. They thought, yeah, we'll get them next time and yeah, we'll get, and, we'll get and more. And I think the Teutonic, I don't think the Teutonic thing is a joke. I think they really believed in racial solidarity between England and Germany. I think that was, mm-hmm. a, you know, a bigger factor than they like to talk about now. But yeah, it was. Clark says that the Germans, uh, they found the Entente between Britain and France was bad news. The German leadership looked for ways of pushing open the door that had recently been shut by the Entente. And again, you know, I love the language. Are you not even aware that pushing open somebody else's door is rude? And he's referring to the Moroccan crisis of 1905. In the official mind of British foreign policy, the history of Anglo-German relations was conceived as a black record of German provocations. Vague and undefined schemes of Teutonic expansion were imputed to the German leadership. And I loved loved this. So the British have an official mind and and they're going to have this paranoid, uh, you know, history of Anglo-German relations where the Germans are always doing evil things. And they have vague and undefined schemes of Teutonic expansion. And I thought, yeah, exactly. It's called Weltpolitik. <laughs> and nobody in Germany knows what it means. Right. Vague and undefined. Yeah. Clark writes, why did these people become so hostile to Germany? Did the Germans behave worse than the other powers? And again, I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm tempted to say, um... Yeah, kind of. Well, they're the ones who are a threat to Britain. Yeah. Like how many other is, how many yeah. other powers asked Britain to remain neutral if yeah. they went to war with somebody else? Yeah. Uh nobody. So Clark of course goes into great detail with Airy Crow, uh, the British Foreign Office official and his memorandum of 1907. Everything Germany did was bullying and blackmail, and the only way to deal with them was the most unbending determination to uphold British rights and interests in every part of the globe, mm-hmm. so as to win the respect of the German government and the German nation. I thought, okay, whoa. Okay. Uh, what country <laughs> do you know of that does not defend its interests? Yeah. Oh, wait, the British. Now I'm not holding them up as paragons of virtue. Let's let's not go there. But the British gave way over Venezuela with, you know, American pressure. They just measured the, you know, how much do we yeah, care costs, about the border costs between and benefits? Yeah, 
yeah, the border between Venezuela and British Guyana. How important is that to us? Versus the Americans being seriously ticked off at us. Yeah, I think we can give a little on that one. Uh, they also gave way on the border of British Columbia and uh, the United States. A lot of territory was given up there. The Alaskan border with uh, Yukon and British Columbia. You only have to look at that one and realize that doesn't make much sense. That you know the, the shape of Alaska. Well, th- that's because the British gave in. They gave away Canadian territory in order to uh, accommodate America. America, and they also gave way in Samoa. They gave the Germans Samoa, so they're perfectly capable. And unbending determination is not what I would, you know. Yes, they can get uh, they can get their backs up and they can be stubborn, but yeah, uh, Clark, this was not a scenario that left much room to accommodate the rising power or Europe's youngest empire. Why do you have to be accommodated? <laughs> what is this demand to be accommodated? You know, you want fries with that? What are we, your, your servant? Oh, we have to roll well, out the red know, carpet. Uh, the Germans imperial, are here. Im- imperialism is uh you know we got we i thought we were all in this together uh yeah we are don't we and if you snooze you lose (laughs) (laughs) uh so clark suggests that british policy would have been different if the anti-germans had not taken over the foreign office and he names gray harding and birdie yeah that's fair german policy would have been different if Tirpitz had not been put in charge of the Navy and if the Kaiser hadn't backed them all the way. So, yeah, we can do that with every country. The Triple Entente, he argues, would not have happened without Britain's anxieties and paranoia. So, you know, again, which country would you think of uh, in this period as, you know, having the most anxiety and paranoia? Uh... Germany number one by a fairly, you know, (laughs) we're encircled, we're surrounded, uh, everybody's out to get us, nobody shows us. All we're asking is a place in the sun. Anyway, uh, Clark is on more solid ground when he's discussing how German foreign policy and their naval policy was driven by domestic concerns. Hmm. So having to appease the Naval League and the imperious lobby, pleasing the nationalists, Uh, wrestling with the socialists in the Reichstag. And I would recommend uh, a book by Hans-Ulrich Wehler, W-E-H-L-E-R. He wrote a book called Der Primat der Innenpolitik. This is the primacy of domestic politics. Oh, yeah. So he's arguing that very often foreign policy is dictated by your domestic policy. And he was a leading critic of what he saw as efforts by reactionary historians to whitewash German history. So this guy comes after Fisher. Fisher, yeah. So you have the reaction to Fisher and all these guys doubling down on it wasn't Germany's fault, they're all out to get us. And he was a big deal in the historian's dispute, the historiker streit, Uh, of the 1980s. So German historians have been fighting over this stuff. And, you know, to some degree, 
there are things that they're still debating and and fussing over. Oh yeah, including, including Hitler, unfortunately. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and as we will see, I don't. I think the big problem with Hitler, you know, I think that the big problem with never being able to quite let go of Hitler is anti-communism. Like, how do you, how do you say that Hitler was the worst? How do you, how do you maintain what Hitler was and how bad Hitler was while you also try to demonize the people that actually defeated him? So that for me is the, the contradiction in Western policy, which leads them inevitably to go back to rehabilitating Hitler over and over again. Well, Hitler was one of the the primary anti-communists of the period. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So they, they're, they're trying to rehabilitate that part of him. Yeah. And, you know, leave out a few <laughs> other things. The package, but it, it ends up being a package deal. Right? Uh, we can, you know, we, we can excuse a few or leave out a few things. Um, so, Valer, I mean, it's interesting because just a couple of general reflections. One is, I don't, I don't actually believe uh, that, that foreign policy is driven by domestic policy. I, I, over the years, I've come to think it's probably the other way around, especially in, you know, in the, in these Britain U S kind of, if you're, if you're an M, if you're an imperialist, you know, maintaining the empire is the first priority. And, and, you know, you, you try to propagandize and, and do bribe and, and, you know, whatever, cajole your domestic population to do what they what needs to be done to make sure that continues. But I, I'm more 50 50. I think there are some yeah. pretty clear examples. I mean, the Falklands War springs to mind from an Argentine perspective, you know. Yeah, yeah, maybe, but maybe if you're maybe, maybe this is a British, maybe it's a kind of exception if you're the global hegemon, if you're the global empire, maybe foreign policy is primary if you're one of the other countries you probably are domestically it is the domestic questions are the most important questions hmm. uh, it could be yeah, dialectical I, I wonder <laughs> but this episode uh, also makes me think about the larger arms race so we decided not to do uh, mm-hmm. an episode on the arms race alone which which i would have done in a in a high school class uh, i mm-hmm. i think the stuff that uh, the tables that Justin put up at, at the front of the episode with, yeah. you know, the size of the armies, the, uh, the industrial power behind them, yeah. the military spending, all of the major powers were increasing their military spending. And every yeah. time one of them did it, the others were alarmed. <laughs> right. So yeah. the fact that we spent more on our army, than say the Russians over the last three years, but this year the Russians have massively increased their spending to try to catch up. Yeah, <laughs> that's Which now means, a major threat yeah. to us. Why are they doing this? And yeah. yeah, so every defensive move is interpreted by the other side as a sign of hostile intent. Uh, you know, yeah. So they got fairly stupid on the the arms race stuff again some of it is technologically driven there are new weapons there are new technologies that are changing uh, land armies as well as you know naval uh, ships and and technology if you want to keep up you're going to have to spend more 
but with that, so the, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh no, I was. Uh, I, 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 you should definitely finish because I was going to talk. I was going to preview where we're going next. So. Oh, okay. Just given the tensions in other areas, the the imperial competition, the nationalism. And then these crises that keep popping up and involving the alliance system, yeah. It the tensions are already so high that you know any tweak in in the balance of armed forces or in military budgets is going to resonate and it's going to make everybody that much more nervous. And then they have to go back to the table and think, okay, do we need to? Yeah, we probably do. <laughs> so yeah. by the time we get to 1914, you have enormous, ridiculously enormous standing armies. And that's without mentioning the reserves and, and the plans to mobilize even, even larger numbers of troops. So we, we'll, yeah. we'll come back to this in a way. We're not going to do another episode on it, but yeah. So it's things have gotten so tense in Europe, Dave, that I think we need a break. I think we need to just leave this <laughs> continent altogether. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so let's go to Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, there is a connection, uh, the Zimmerman telegram, but that, that comes a little later. Oh, and plus Mexico is just so interesting. So good. Okay. Hasta la revolución. <laughs> 